Father, thank you for this time together as we praise you, as we sing of your greatness. And God, I pray that today we would have our eyes opened and our ears ready to receive. So, Lord, I I pray uh, as you listen to our hearts that we would come before you in a spirit of readiness. I pray, Lord, if there's one that doesn't know you, that you draw him by the power of your spirit this day. And we pray that you be glorified in all that we do. In the name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in the book of Revelation, chapter 2. Revelation, chapter 2, as we continue through the book of Revelation. Again, I encourage you to be reading through the book uh, for the, the first few chapters, just so you can have those that in your mind and be prepared when you come. Um, and hopefully we'll answer some of the questions that you might have as you read through the first few chapters of Revelation here. Now, we're going to be looking at the Church of Pergamum, and if I was going to give a title to this sermon, here's how I would title it. I would title it this. I would say, uh, Satan, Syncretism, and Salvation. Satan, Syncretism, and Salvation. And as we look at this city, it was a city that... Uh, matter of fact, you've, you've heard the term Sin City given for Las Vegas. Well, that title certainly could have been applied to the city of Pergamon. The city of Pergamon was considered the capital of Asia. It was a city that had uh, at least three major cults uh, that had shrines and large temples where people would come and worship there. As a matter of fact, one of these was just, you know, popular Greek mythology. When you came to the city, there was a hill that was anywhere from 800 to 1,000 feet above the city. And there was a huge statue of Zeus on a throne overlooking the city. And as you would come in, you would also notice there were a couple other large temples. Another large temple that existed there was the Imperial Cult Temple. It was... The temple in which you would go and worship the Caesar of that day and the Caesars of the past. Matter of fact, it was erected in 29 A.D. by Augustus. And so people would come in and they would see the statue of Caesar. and They would take a little incense and there would be a fire burning there. And they would take that incense and they would throw it in. And they would say, Kaiser Curios, which means Caesar is Lord. An expression that was being used uh, well before Christ came on on the scene. And so that's why it was so incredible and so uh, unbelievable when Christ started making the, the claim that he was Lord. And when believers and followers of Christ would say, Jesus is Lord. It was a slap in the government's face and sometimes there were grave consequences to make that kind of pronouncement. But the third and probably most popular temple that existed there was that of Escalapus, the serpent god. The serpent god, Escalapus. Escalapus was believed to have been, uh, matter of fact, this city, Pergamum itself, was believed by legend to have been started by Hercules' son. And Hercules' son was... Uh, believed to be, uh, at least in legend, to be the first true physician. 
And so Escalapus, the serpent god, uh, literally uh, they would have serpents in this temple that they believed had healing powers. And people would come from all over the known world to experience healing from these serpents. Matter of fact, our medical symbol that we have today is from Escalapus. It's the two serpents. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. Uh, that's kind of the medical symbol we still use today. And it was also believed that the Magian priest, who were kicked out of Babylon, uh, they left and they came to Pergamon, and they were welcomed into the temple of Escalapus. And the, high, the Magian high priest was thought to be the one who could bridge the gap between uh, the, the dead and Satan in the underworld and the mortals here on earth. And so people would come to this temple believing that these priests, believing that Escalapus had the power to heal them. And what would happen is they would come in and the priest would give them some kind of sedative to get them into a sleep or into a uh, kind of another state of mind. They would chant over them and then they would release the snakes. And it was believed that if those snakes would touch your body or crawl over your body, then they would infuse healing into your body. And it was almost always full. People were always coming. And they were bringing their offerings and their sacrifices to the god Escalapus. This is the place where the church of Pergamon was. This is the city where Pergamum existed. This is where the church had to live. The church of Pergamum. In a spiritually oppressive, dark, and difficult time. A place where Christianity would have been regarded as the cult. A place where there was immense pressure and even persecution. In verse 12 of chapter 2, To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. The sharp double-edged sword is believed by uh, many scholars to represent uh, it's, it was a rumphaya. It was a long sword. It had two sharp edges on it, obviously on both sides. And it was believed to represent the righteousness and salvation of God, but also the judgment of God. So the sword of judgment and the sword of righteousness. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Many believe that that throne was representative either of the imperial cult or even Zeus and, of course, many Escalapus. Yet you remain true to my name and you did not renounce me in, you did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Now, he's saying, you know what, you have a, a, a good history You've been a faithful church. You've been faithful to the word of God. You've stood firm. And you, Antipas, who was probably a leader, a pastor in the church, legend says that he would not recant his faith. And when taken uh, before the, the imperial cult temple, they said, all you have to do is simply say, Kaiser Curia, say Caesar is Lord, and we'll let you go. But if not, Antipas, 
we would kill you. As a matter of fact, they had a huge brass bull, uh, let, uh, history tells us, or tradition tells us, that was right outside of that temple that they would use to roast the meat that they would offer before the sacrifices. And they said, Antipas, we're going to put you in this brass bull and roast you if you don't recant. But he would not. And he was roasted there. Matter of fact, it calls him faithful witness right there. That term became synonymous with our word martyr. That's where our word comes from, martyr. When you see that word described, it almost always refers to someone who dies for their faith. Jesus is referred to in that way in chapter 1. So he says, you have been faithful in the past. You're, you have rich heritage in a Satan where Excuse me, in a city, in an area where Satan lives. Now, for just a moment, let me just take a moment here uh, to just uh, venture off for just a quick second, because I think this text alludes to this. You know, today in our culture, it's real popular not to believe that there's evil and certainly not to believe that there is a a Satan or a satanic force. Uh, But we know that there is an evil. Uh, We know that definitely evil exists. And, and if nothing else, on this day of all days, we ought to remember where there was a great atrocity, a great evil uh, that occurred. And so we know there is the prince of darkness uh, as believers in Christ. And what's true is that he certainly oppresses this world. Jesus calls him the prince of this world. But what is also true is that sometimes Christians have strongholds. Satan has strongholds in our lives because we've invited him in or we've gotten into some kind of thought process or behavior that we've allowed him to come in and strengthen his hold through an addiction or uh, through some type of um, something that we are just caught up in. And when we get in that place, what do we do? And, and it's interesting, last two weeks I've had more people talk to me about spiritual oppression than I probably have the last two years. Uh, and so I wanted to take just a moment to address this. And what do I do when I feel that I'm oppressed by Satan? What do I do uh, when I feel like he is sending messages to me and when I feel like I don't have the strength to resist? What do I do when it's my children? Or what do I do when it's my in my marriage? Or what do I do when it's in my family? How do I handle that? Well, it's pretty simple, but I want to walk through some steps I think are imperatives uh, for us dealing with strongholds in our lives. First of all, uh, pray Scripture out loud. Praying Scripture out loud. One of the things that I do for our children each night is I pray Scripture over them. I pray God's protection on them. I pray God's uh, mercy and grace and power upon their lives. And I pray those Scriptures every night over my kids. Sometimes even when I come in later, I'll just go in and I'll just I'll just whisper it uh, over them. I, I think that's important. I think it's important to pray Scripture out loud in these instances because... Our mouth and our mind, our heart, we're all connected together, and it's, it's an act and a statement of faith. This is what Jesus did when Satan came against him. If you look at, if we had time, we'd look at it, but I invite you to look at Matthew chapter 4, verses 4 through 10. Jesus, each time Satan comes to oppress him, Satan comes against him, what does he do? He quotes scripture, and he quotes it verbally, out loud, to Satan. And after the third time, Satan has to leave. Now, uh, there are a lot of different books. Beth Moore has a good one. Also, this is probably what, my favorite, the one I think is the best. This is Ken Boa, Face to Face. And this is just scripture that you can pray over your own life. Uh, you can pray over the life of your family and pray over your children. And, and I invite you to check that out. Uh, there's a couple left. Um, and uh, you can make a donation or you can have them, whatever you need to do. Okay? Uh, but I think it's just 
extremely important that we get into that habit of praying God's power and praying God's word over our children and over our family. The second thing that we notice that Jesus did is that he resisted out loud. Matter of fact, James chapter 4, verse 7 tells us to submit to God and resist the devil and he will flee. Submit to a higher authority. Submit to God. Submit to the sovereignty of God. God, uh, I submit to you and I ask that you bring this under your authority and I resist Satan in your name. You know, you may think, that's kind of goofy to be saying those things. I'm telling you, when it's real to you, it won't seem so goofy. All right? And so I I encourage you uh, to resist out loud. Number three, uh, fortify yourself. Matter of fact, the etymology of the word in the Greek of Pergamos was fortress. How do we fortify ourselves? Well, first of all, the Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 6 to put on the whole armor of God. Before we put on the whole armor of God, I think it's necessary that we first confess our sin and repent of sin that's in our life. Bring it before God. Quit trying to hide it. So many times we find ourselves in these strongholds because we're trying to hide things from God, and God already knows. Just verbalize it to Him. Uh, that's a, that's a definitely an, an act of confession and repentance when we verbalize our sin to Him. Give Him praise and thanksgiving. In the act of worship, when we are worshiping, he is inhabiting the praises of people. We are being strengthened in our spirits as we give him worship and praise. Ask the Holy Spirit to come and to take control of that aspect. Call upon the Spirit of God to come and control that aspect of your life. And then fill your mind with truth. I'm so glad that we have great programs for our children. We have Bible drill where our children are memorizing scriptures uh, in our class right now. My son loves to come, and every week he comes and memorizes these verses. He loves it. As a matter of fact, he, he wants to go to all the hours. We're trying to say, you know, you can't, you don't need to go all three hours, son. Uh, but he's memorizing this scripture, and I'm so thankful for a church that equips our children with the word of God. That is so important because when those attacks come against you, instead of saying, Leave me alone. Uh, you can begin to quote the scripture. And when they're in our children's mind, they can begin to quote the word of God, which is the power that has been given to us through the spirit of Christ. And lastly, request prayer. Ask people to pray for you. Ask people to pray over you. We just got through praying over some folks as a group of elders. Uh, we prayed over over a family a while ago. Uh, if we can do that or and it doesn't have to be an elder. If you're, there's a follower of Christ, a friend of yours that knows Christ. Uh, ask him to pray over you. Lay hands and just pray God's spirit and blessing and power upon you. Uh, I, if you didn't get a chance to write that down, I've got a little copy outside that I made for you that you can pick up at, at the desk on the way out. Now, back to our text. I want to come back here. As some say I'm ADD, but I did that on purpose um, today. Nevertheless, he's talking to the to the church of Pergamum. He says, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food, sacrifice to the idols, and by committing sexual immorality. This first part, the first part was about Satan. The second part is about syncretism. Now, what does syncretism mean? Well, let me give you the layman's version, real simple. It's when you take two different philosophies and you attempt to just mesh them together and make one philosophy. Syncretism is just... Let's just, don't say anything is wrong, let's just mesh it all together, okay? And that's very popular today, and it was very popular back then. In this place and in this city where oppression was so rampant, it was a lot easier to say, well, yeah, we worship Jesus, but Kaiser Kyrios <laughs> and Escalapus, I think he's a great God too. Zeus, they're, they're all good. 
their God, your God, my God, we're all gods. You know, I mean, it's it's kind of that mentality. Let's just not let's don't be judgmental. Let's just be tolerant of all. And, and you know what? That still rings true today, doesn't it? You still hear people say make this kind of statement. Well, you know what? You know, we're all worshiping the same God. It doesn't matter what you call him just as long as you really believe. Do you really believe that? So what you would tell me is you think bin Laden's same God as you're worshiping. Bin Laden said God told him to fly those planes into the World Trade Center. Is that the same God you're worshiping? If it is, you and I got a problem. I say you and I got. You don't really matter what I think. You and God got a problem is what I think. I would say that's wrong. Unequivocally wrong. Matter of fact, let me just go out on a limb here for you. We believe in this church in this exclusivity of Christ. That is Christ and Christ alone. Not Christ plus. Not Christ in addition to how good I can be. Or not Christ in addition to what somebody else says or another God or another belief. But Christ and Christ alone. And when I sync, when I do synchronization of that, then what I just do is I've made null and void the cross of Christ. That, that that is not sufficient. And I tell you, I believe he is sufficient. That's why Jesus said, I am the way, truth, and life. And no man comes to the Father but through me. That's why Paul said, there is no other name under heaven or earth by which we must be saved. Save the name of Jesus Christ. So we believe in the exclusivity of Christ. And that it's through Christ and Christ alone, through his death, burial, and resurrection, that salvation is granted here, in Balaam and Balak, who are these guys, by the way? Well, if you went back to Numbers 22, and you could read uh, 22 through 24, you can read the story of uh, Balaam and Balak. Balak was a Moabite king, and he knew the children of Israel were coming into his area, and he was scared. And so he said, I tell you what, I'm going to hire this prophet, this prophet Balaam, to go out and pronounce a curse on them. So he comes to Balaam and says, I want to give you so much money. He says, I don't think I can really do that. He goes, I'm going to give you a lot of money. Okay, I think I'll try. And so this guy was a prophet in the P-R-O-F-I-T. Okay, I mean, he was for profit. He wasn't a non-profit. He was a for-profit prophet. Okay, and so he he goes and he decides that he's going to try to pronounce it. But every time he gets up, the Spirit of the Lord comes over him and he pronounces a blessing uh, on the nation, the children of Israel, upon the Jews. And so the Hebrews, as they were known at that time. And so um, he, it won't work. So finally, according to Numbers chapter 31, the Bible tells us that this is what he did. He says, here's what you do. He says, go get the Midianite women and have them uh, invite all the men, all the warriors, to all, the, all those Hebrews to a, to a big party and a big festivity and have them come and um, just seduce them. And uh, that's how you can uh, save your land and that's how you can uh, be protected. That, that's what you need to do. And so that's exactly what he did. And Sure enough, they went and you know, they got invited to this big party and um, it was a big party. And so they had plenty to drink and they began to uh, uh, they said, look, we've got we got meat here. You've been eating bread. I hear all the time. We've got brisket. Uh, so come eat, eat some meat with us. And they were like, that sounds good. Meat. I, I love meat. I hadn't had meat in a long time. And so they all come. It was a part of their act of worship. They bring that they would present that meat before the idols. And um, and then if that wasn't enough, they said, you know, something else. Part of our worship is um, one of the ways we worship is uh, we we are, you know, some of us are kind of temple priests, priestess. And uh, we believe the act of sex is an act of worship here in the temple. So that's part of our part of our religion. And um, certainly you'll want to be tolerant of that. And the guys, oh, yeah, I think we'll be tolerant of that. And so that's what occurred. And we see that there's a great penalty that comes upon 
the Hebrew children of the nation of Israel because of this sin. But that's how they were seduced. And basically he's saying, you know what? Some of you are still holding to that kind of mentality. In many of these temples, that's still what occurred. They'd come and they would eat the meat, sacrifice the idols, and they would engage in sex, and they would call it worship. And the problem was, there were people that were coming into the church that were saying, well, yeah, I go to church here, but, you know, I worship with my friends sometimes. You know, I don't want to be too rigid. I I go over here and worship over here at Escalapis or the Imperial Cult or wherever it was. And, you know, I... just, you know, I definitely believe in Christ, but I believe also in these things. It, it was a severe form of synchronism, and they were existing in the church. And they were outspoken in the church. He also said, likewise, you have those who hold to the te- teachings of the Nicolaitans. We talked about this a few weeks ago. We're not positive of the exact belief, set of beliefs of the Nicolaitans, but it seems uh, to be that they at least did not recognize Jesus Christ as God. They didn't believe in the Trinity, the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. And so Nicolaitans, who recognized Jesus just as a man, he said, you've allowed both of these camps into the church, and they're outspoken about it, and you've done nothing to address it. You've not addressed this issue. He goes, this is a problem. He says, repent, therefore, otherwise I will come to you, and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth, with the judgment of my word. He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Now, what is that? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give him some of the hidden manna. The hidden manna, uh, there's an old legend uh, Hebrew legend that when the Babylonian Empire came in and began to demolish the, the nation uh, of the Hebrews, um, they they took their uh, Ark of the Covenant and they hid it either in Mount Nebo or Sinai, depending on which uh, tradition you listen to. And in that contained the hidden manna, the manna that had been given God. It was a jar of manna that was in the Ark of the Covenant. And it was believed by many Jews that when the Messiah would return, that he would reclaim that Ark from either Mount Nebo or Sinai, and the hidden manna would be presented again. Now, with that background that some understood, Jesus said in John chapter 6, he said, I am the bread of life. Many thought that hidden manna was the bread of life. But he said, I am the bread of life. He goes on to say, I am the bread of heaven. And, and, and we know that they were very upset with Jesus when he said that. Because he made that pro- proclamation, I'm the bread of life. I'm the bread of heaven. I've been sent down from heaven to you. I believe that the hidden manna is a direct reference to John chapter 6. When Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the manna. You think that manna has been hidden? I am the hidden manna. And matter of fact, if you will overcome, if you will Believe in Christ and Christ alone and stand firm to your conviction. If you will be a faithful witness, I tell you this, you will experience me in a deeper, in a way that it's been hidden to you that you haven't understood before, that you could not have imagined. And not only that, I'm going to give you a white stone. Now, what does that mean, a white stone? Well, there there are a couple of different thoughts on that. There are a couple of different reasons that white stones were used back then. I want to give you two of them. The first one was, whenever there was a, a lot of times when there was a banquet, 
or there was an award ceremony or some kind of celebration, some kind of big party, uh, white stones were used as your invitation. They would put some little mark or etching or dot or something on there that represented whatever party or whatever um, uh, you know ceremony that was, and you would bring it, and that would be your ticket. And so you'd give them that ticket, and they would welcome you into the banquet, or they would welcome you into the ceremony. And that's what your ticket was. It was a white stone with a marking on it. Another thought, though, was that uh, when you had that white stone, was that it was also uh, a jury that would use it. We know that that happened, Tom. And if you were, uh, if you were guilty, the, the uh, juror would put out a black stone. And if they thought you were in it, they'd put out a white stone. So they would count the number of stones, and that's how they would make their decision. Jesus says, I'm going to give you a white stone. I'm going to give you a white stone. And it's going to be, I believe it's a direct reference to Revelation chapter 19 with a messianic banquet. If you go back and you read that, it's going to be the symbol, the picture. This is a picture of the salvation that's been given to you. If you will trust in me and me alone, if you will transfer and commit your life to me and forget about these other gods and trust me alone, then there's a white stone waiting for you. There's a banquet waiting for you. There is a huge party. There's a huge celebration of which you're going to be a part of. But you can only get there from the white stone that's been given. And then he says this, which is really interesting. He says, and I will give you a name of which no, no one else knows. I'll give you a name. Now, we see in Scripture uh, several times where people are given new names. We know Saul was given the name Paul. And uh, we have seen multiple times P, uh, Simon was given the name Peter. So we see that happening because it's a, a characteristic, an identification. I'm giving you a new identity. And that's what Christ does for us. When we receive him as Lord and Savior, he gives us a new identity. We've been cleansed and forgiven, and where before our stone was guilty, lost, sin. He exchanges that stone for a white stone. You are invited to come in, not because of anything you've done or anything you've accomplished, but because of what I've done for you on the cross. You are cleansed. You are welcomed in. So here's my question for you today. What are you trusting in today? Are you trusting? You know, I'm a good guy. I go to church sometimes. I try to do what's right. I'm a good person. Is that the stone you want to give? Because the Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. We can only obtain a white stone, a white heart, a forgiven spirit. By the mercies and the grace of God. And if we depend upon our goodness or upon what someone else has taught us, upon tradition or religion, we will be presenting a black stone saying, God, I tried to be pretty good. I think I did okay. I made some mistakes. And that's guilty. Depart from me. I never knew. All we can say is, God, I don't deserve anything, but by your grace, I trusted you. I ask you to come in and forgive me my sins, and I trusted you. That is the only white stone that can be offered before a holy God. The only way of forgiveness occurs. My question to you, what would you present to God today? Guilty?
or forgiven. Let's pray. Father, thank you that by your grace we are saved through faith. It is not of ourselves. It's not of our own efforts. It's not because of our traditions or our religion, but only through Jesus. And Lord, I know there are those who seek to kill, steal, and destroy that spirit. And Lord, I pray that we would be aware in a society that values tolerance and syncretism, that, Lord, we'd stand firm upon our faith, upon Christ and Christ alone, but upon the principles of Scripture that have been given to us that we are to teach and that we are to live by. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. And, Lord, I pray if there's one that does not know you today, that you draw them by the power of your Spirit, that they might experience your grace and forgiveness. In your name I pray. Amen.